0: An experiment. No, 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 no. Why is life so far? Like it sounds so simple. They had no idea. But now the data speaks. P- I find
2: this not only refreshing, but but at some level astounding. Nature.
3: Nature.
4: Welcome back to the Nature podcast. This week we'll be hearing about the placental microbiome and learning about advances in AI hardware. I'm Nick Cow and I'm Noah Baker.
5: You may think of the microbiome as the collection of microorganisms that live in our gut. And that would be right, to a point. But our gut isn't the only place to host that party of microbes. And, for the record, the word microbiome specifically refers to the genetic information of those microbes. But anyway, they don't just live on our guts; they also live on our skin, our mouths, even in our eyes. But there is a part of the body where scientists can't seem to agree on whether or not microbes dwell. And that is the placenta, the organ which grows during pregnancy to deal with the fetus's vital functions. Here's Gordon Smith, a researcher in maternal-fetal medicine.
2: So the sort of original view of the placenta had been that it was thought to be sterile. Um, and there was a paper a few years back in Science Translational Medicine which really sort of turned around the thinking on that, suggesting that there uh, could be a placental microbiome uh, that is a, a, a population of bacteria that uh, would normally be living in the placenta.
5: If true, this could have important implications for the developing baby. Bacteria in the placenta could cause disease or be associated with complications in pregnancy. Alternatively, the placenta could be part of how the baby acquires its own microbiome. Since the Science Translational Medicine study, there have been various papers going back and forth questioning whether or not a placental microbiome exists. This week in Nature, Gordon throws his own hat into the ring with the biggest study so far, using samples from 537 British women. Gordon sequenced all of the material in the samples – discounted any human genetic material and then looked to see if any bacterial DNA was left.
2: But it
5: isn't quite that simple.
2: One of the questions that we were aware of was how do you differentiate real signal that's in the sample from contamination that might be caused by any number of different sources. So a key thing that we did was to use two methods and also to then to look at the level of agreement between the two methods.
5: Gordon looked at fragments of DNA from his samples and also searched for specific bacterial genes. If he didn't get the same result from both methods, he discounted the signals as contamination.
2: We saw lots and lots of signals with each method, but they didn't agree. And what we've concluded is that the most likely reason they didn't agree is that they were they were introduced through some form of contamination in this of laboratory analysis.
5: Contamination was a real issue. For example... Gordon found cholera in his samples. But given there hasn't been a cholera outbreak in the UK for quite a while, it seemed unlikely it was in women's placentas. And indeed, using the two-method approach, Gordon concluded that the cholera was more likely to have come from the sequencing facility itself. He also found evidence that some of the supposedly sterile reagents they were using were occasionally contaminated. After discounting suspected contamination, Gordon found that there was no bacteria present on the placenta in healthy pregnancies. But that's not to say there wasn't anything at all.
2: We found one real signal, and that is a, a species of streptococcus, which is called group B strep.
5: This bacterium was found in 5% of samples, and Gordon and his team believed that they were due to infections during pregnancy rather than the microbiome. Altogether, they conclude there is no microbiome associated with the placenta. So that's it. Debate settled. Not at all. This is Shirsty Agard, a researcher in maternal-fetal medicine who is the lead author on the science translational medicine paper Gordon mentioned earlier.
3: I actually think they are describing a placental microbiome.
5: Shirsty believes that a lot of what Gordon is dismissing as contamination are actually examples of the placental microbiome. Gordon only considered a signal real if he detected the exact same species using both methods. Shirstie pointed out that it can be tricky to identify bacteria at a species level using these techniques. Also, some bacteria were dismissed as they were thought to have been acquired during vaginal birth, but Shirstie disagreed.
3: We cannot down crucial lines of investigation that may make a real difference for, for women and their families, including their babies. I think there is a real signal here. I am thrilled and I applaud these investigators for the incredible work they've done. But I think we look at it through a different lens and we don't necessarily need to disregard things as contaminant when we consider the biology and some fundamentally important technical considerations that led to some different conclusions.
5: In fact, looking at Gordon's data, Shirsty would conclude that there is a placental microbiome. The difference, she says, is in the interpretation. So the debate on whether or not the placental microbiome exists may not be settled, But studies like Gordon's are still useful to understand how infections, like the group B streptococcus he found, can occur during pregnancy. Here's Gordon.
2: Infection of the baby with group B strep is the most common cause of death of the baby in the first weeks of life uh, due to sepsis. And so that's that's really our current area of study. What we're now trying to do is to go through a large number of samples and see, is the, does the presence of this group B strep in the placenta you know, carry any predictive association with complications for the baby?
5: That was Gordon Smith of Cambridge University here in the UK. You also heard from Shirsty Agard of the Baylor College of Medicine in the US. You can
4: find Gordon's paper over at nature.com along with a News & Views article. Later in the show, how HIV is becoming resistant to drugs. That's in the news chat. But now it's time for the research highlights, read this week by Sharmini Bundell.
0: When it comes to the causes of allergies, there are a lot of possible culprits, from extremely clean houses to the overuse of antibiotics. Now research has confirmed another factor, prescription antacids taken to treat things like heartburn or stomach ulcers. A new analysis of over 8 million health records showed that people using prescription antacids were twice as likely to need anti-allergy medication in the following years. This may be because antacids prevent food being fully broken down in the stomach, meaning larger protein fragments can reach the intestines and potentially sensitise the immune system, leading to an allergic response. Digest more on this story, at Nature Communications. What's the best way to find the source of a leak? In October 2017, labs across Europe noticed extremely high levels of a rare radioactive isotope in the atmosphere. The isotope, ruthenium-106, wasn't concentrated enough to be dangerous to people, but researchers were keen to figure out where it had come from. They traced the source to Russia, ...to approximately the area of a nuclear processing plant. At the time, Russian officials denied that the plant could be the source of the leak... ...and instead blamed a disintegrating satellite. Now, a group of European researchers have examined exactly when the radiation was detected... ...in different countries, and studied air movements at the time of detection. They narrowed down the source to a region in the southern Urals, where the nuclear plant is located... They concluded that the leak was likely caused by an unreported accident at the plant. You can trace that story back to its source in the proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences.
4: For many of us, artificial intelligence is already part of our lives. Neural networks, computer systems modelled on the human brain, have given rise to all sorts of applications, from face recognition to our interactions with personal assistants like Alexa or Google Home, and the rise of these technologies is showing no signs of slowing. But for this pace of change to continue, the hardware to run the neural networks may have to change. Much of what's currently used wasn't really designed for AI. Jeff Marsh caught up with Luke Fleet, one of Nature's physics editors, to find out more and to discuss a new paper that's tackling some of the problems facing the field. As an editor, I get to see
6: papers from lots of different fields, but I think AI hardware is my favourite topic and I'm pretty excited about this new paper.
1: Every day there's a sort of new AI technology that we can have on our phone, speech recognition, you know, that sort of software developments, isn't it? You're talking about hardware. A lot of the AI computing that we do
6: now is done on things like graphics cards and with CPUs, which you would find in your laptop or in your PC. But they were developed for doing a different type of computation to what AI demands. It will probably be much more efficient and faster to do AI computing if we had hardware that was actually designed for AI computing. Often the AI computing is actually being done not on what we call edge devices, so not on things like your mobile phone. They're actually being done in data centers. And these data centers often are not the most environmentally friendly or energy efficient places. So there are quite scary stats around the amount of water that data centers would use or the carbon emissions um, which, you know, potentially even rival something like the aviation industry or are projected to in the future if, if things don't change. Wow.
1: And when you say water, is that for sort of cooling?
6: Yeah, that's one of the problems is that we have technology now that, you know, as you shrink down uh, things like silicon transistors and put more and more in a chip, heating becomes a real, real problem. That's actually one of the limiting factors behind how fast you can actually run CPUs. You can only run them at a certain speeds, otherwise they'll just melt.
1: The reason I've dragged you down to the studio today then is to hear about a new development that's come out of a Chinese research group and they've created some new hardware, I guess, to solve some of these problems of inefficiency what they've tried to do
6: is they've tried to build a hardware that allows people to actually run the types of neural networks that are currently operating in things like data centers, which are really software-built neural networks, whilst at the same time allowing other types of networks, which we would normally see in specialized AI hardware chips. Some of the hardware that's currently out there for AI computing in what are called brain-inspired chips Often these are running a particular type of neural network. So these are called spiking neural networks. But interestingly, these are quite different to the networks that we are currently interacting with. And the way that you would program these is is also very, very different. What this team have managed to do is actually develop a chip that allows both of these different types to actually run on the same chip,
1: and not just switching from one to the other,
6: but actually kind of run them at the same time.
1: And I've seen they've actually put out a video of what they've The utility that they've put this new hybrid chip to, and it's an unmanned bicycle. And I have to say, it's very eerie to watch. It's essentially just a a bicycle sort of cycling itself and following a man and responding to his voice. Why have they chosen that as a demonstration, and how impressive is it?
6: Uh, I mean, it's a wonderful demonstration. It is quite impressive. Uh, I'm sure lots of people are aware of autonomous driving. So with autonomous bicycles, um, you know, you have some different um, factors to think about. So just getting the stability of a bike is not trivial, as I'm sure many toddlers would be able to, uh, to tell you. And then there are many different inputs you can have with a bike. Obviously, there are obstacles on the road, um, but what they've tried to do is have kind of voice, voice commands as well. Um, and they've tried you know, lots of different things to show that this bike can autonomously drive itself uh, whilst constantly keeping its stability.
1: And did it end up making it much more efficient? I mean, we were talking about the current AI tends to be really inefficient. Has this kind of solved the problem? So that's the really interesting and impressive thing about this paper is that they're demonstrating a chip
6: that shows that you can use kind of some of the best bits from the neural network designs that are out there and potentially make AI computation a little bit more efficient. One of the problems is that if you then try to compare this type of chip's performance to some of the other chips that are out there, um, it's not necessarily clear that this chip can outperform the other chips. So these more specialized chips that are running just one standard type of neural network, I'm sure that if you've got one of these chips and tried to do similar experiments... You could probably do them you might even be able to do them better than what this
1: current chip can do why would you bother then trying to bring these two different sort of systems together in a hybrid like this
6: the reason why the authors have tried to do this is that all of the ai we've talked about so far is really narrow ai it's trying to do a specific type of computation to optimize for a task but what people really want to develop is what's called agi so artificial general intelligence so something that can go beyond these kind of specific optimization tasks. Um, and a good example for this is you can give a, a toddler a cartoon picture of a cat. And not even an actual picture, but just a cartoon. And just from this one image, it can go outside and recognize a cat. And the types of AI that we have now are just so far away from that. And I think everybody would agree that if you are to develop AGI, then we are going to need new hardware, you know, new architectures it's not clear what these architectures are going to look like but until people start to explore and start to innovate and you know start playing around with different designs then it's not clear you know, how we're going to progress with this so they've demonstrated in in this paper that they've got this hybrid architecture um, that has lots of very clever tricks. It can be kind of reprogrammed. It's multifunctional. Can run different types of networks. Can run different types of networks, kind of alongside each other. It's something that people weren't necessarily uh, thinking about doing. I mean, part of the reason for that was that it's not clear what advantage that gives you now. But as I say, the authors are trying to look beyond that, you know, beyond narrow AI, and say, you know, if we're working towards artificial general intelligence, what hardware do we need to actually get there?
4: That was Luke Fleet, physics editor here at Nature. You can find out more about the chip that can cycle a bike in the paper. That's at nature.com. Finally on the show, it's time for the news chat, and
5: I'm joined in the studio by Flora Graham, editor of The Nature Briefing. Hello, Flora. Hello. Thanks for joining me. For a first story this week, the WHO has raised a red flag about resistance to HIV drugs. Flora, why has this alarm been raised?
3: Well, the WHO has surveyed countries all around the world, and they've found that 12 countries in Africa, Asia and the Americas, are showing worrying levels of resistance to HIV drugs. So what is a worrying level of resistance? Well, when more than 10% of adults with the virus have developed resistance, it's not considered safe to give the same medication to others because it could actually increase resistance.
5: Do we know why this resistance might be spreading?
3: We're not 100% sure why the resistance is spreading. But it could be because some people are interrupting their treatment. Their treatment is starting and stopping. And there can be a lot of reasons for this uh, pressure and stigma can all be factors in people's lives that might cause them to stop treatment and then restart again.
5: So with this spread of resistance uh, across these different countries, is there anything that is to be done?
3: What the WHO recommends is to use a different HIV drug instead. It's less susceptible to becoming drug resistant. And of course, being a completely new drug to the existing ones, it won't be affected by this existing drug resistance.
5: Well, we'll have to see then if this new drug will be an effective treatment. For our second story, there's news about human-animal hybrid experiments. Uh, So it appears that in Japan, some new experiments have been approved. Flora, what exactly are the scientists trying to do here?
3: So these scientists, they want to create the very, very first step in what could ultimately become human organs inside animals that could be used for transplants in humans. But that's very, very far down the road. We're still talking about just the initial stages being approved.
5: So what are the ethical concerns with this work?
3: Yes, this was banned in Japan until March. These kinds of human animal hybrid embryos are controversial because we're talking about human cells. We don't know how they will affect the development of the animal. We don't know ultimately what the end game of this kind of research could possibly be. Some ethicists are concerned that we won't be able to control how the human cells move in the animal body and They could even move beyond the targeted organ, and we could end up with an animal's brain that has human cells in it. And you know, this raises kind of science fiction level questions about human animal hybrids and what they might ultimately become.
5: So, are the researchers taking any steps to prevent this?
3: Well, the researcher who's leading this project really emphasizes that he's starting in a very slow, targeted way, and that actually the animals will not be brought to term. So, they're talking about embryos here only at this point the technique that they're using is designed to make sure that any human cells are restricted to the organ that they're trying to produce. So, for example, they actually create an animal embryo that lacks the gene necessary to develop a certain organ, like the pancreas in this case. And then they use human iPS cells. These are induced pluripotent stem cells that can, in theory, develop into any kind of cell. Then when the embryo develops... It uses those human iPS cells to develop that particular organ only. So what are the next steps then for this research? Well, researchers are going to start right at the beginning, growing human cells in mouse and rat embryos, and then transplanting those embryos into surrogate animals. Eventually, way, way, way down the line, the goal is to produce animals with organs that are compatible with humans that can eventually be transplanted into people.
5: Well, it sounds like there'll be a few more hurdles to overcome before we get to organs through this technique. Thanks, Flora. Listeners, for more on those stories, head over to nature.com
4: slash news. And that's it for this week's show. If you want to reach out to us about anything you've heard or just want to say hi, then feel free to drop us a tweet at naturepodcast or email us on podcast at nature.com. I'm Noah Baker. And I'm Nick How. Thanks for listening.